Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Isn't it so nice to be able to do this together? Sometimes, you know, we, we attend workshops and um, the place that the ego comes in is like this, this sense that um, <coughs> um, like, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough, I don't have enough, now I have to like really, now I'm going to practice and get that posture uh, and that's you know sometimes the context of Shavasana or these chants that we've been chanting like um, may all beings be safe and free from danger remind us that um, we're so lucky that we have the health and the leisure time and the safety we can congregate men and women in the same room and that you're literate that you have the senses available so you can explore these teachings because one day you won't why we were chanting yesterday um, life and death are of supreme importance and when you, when you recognize that uh, death is inevitable then life has importance and then when you recognize what karma is and that your actions have an effect you realize that when the more you recognize the value of and the preciousness of being alive, the, the more you are motivated to tie yourself to the tree so it doesn't get cut down. As opposed to like an intellectual understanding of impermanence. Oh, everything's changing. It doesn't matter what I do. But actually, you thinking it doesn't matter what you do, is a form of action. 
And is that the kind of society that you want to plant? This morning I woke up early and I walked down to the Elbow River. And, uh, <coughs> and I sat by the river and I noticed the flowing of the water. And that, that calm sound when water is flowing smoothly. Do you know that sound? You don't just hear it with your ears. Because you recognize the river flowing and then it recognizes you. If you go out into the world and you confirm in the world everything that you know already, then that's delusion. But when you go out into the world and you don't know everything, the names of everything, then that's enlightenment that you become enlightened by the natural world. And the natural world includes everything. And so I was noticing how across the water was this really solid steel bridge with copper braided cables. Do you know this bridge? Mm -hmm. There was a beaver swimming under it. Do you know the sound when a beaver goes underwater and it flaps its tail on the water? And then so the mind says the water's flowing and the bridge is still. And then it makes opposites. Flowing, Michael, bridge. And then I got up and I walked across the bridge. When you walk across this bridge, it's, it moves. It's kind of creaking. And then I realize that the bridge has the quality of flowing. The bridge actually has the quality of water. And that when you're on the bridge and it's flowing, then suddenly the water becomes still. And then the bridge has the quality of flowing. And then after the bridge, there's a path which is solid. But there are two paths. You can take a, an asphalt path or you can go off on other paths. And if you go off on those paths, marga, or in Chinese Tao, you go out into the way and um, you can see that there are these drops down into the river made by dogs, mostly, I think, or little kids running away from their parents, <laughs> or beavers. And um, you know that probably next year this path is not going to look the same, right? Because the path also has the quality of flowing. The path has the quality of water. And so the earth is flowing. Dogen says, if you know mountains, you will know that mountains are walking. And if you don't really know mountains, you don't know that mountains are walking. <laughs> so the bridge has the quality of flowing.
And there's a wonderful story like this where a student, a seeker, a seeker comes to a teacher and says to this teacher, how do I enter the way? Have you ever felt this before? It's like after this weekend, there are so many paths. Which path do I take? And one day you're so confused and finally you ask someone, how do I enter (coughs) the way? What path do I take? How do I enter the way? And there weren't any paths, right? It's just human minds have made paths. But practice has the quality of flowing. And the path has the quality of superimposing structure, system, on the flowing. And um, the teacher says, um, do you hear the stream in the ditch over there? And the student says, yes, I hear the sound of the stream. And the teacher says, enter there. Enter there. Which is like saying, enter here. Enter here. So the mind is like, oh, do I do jnana yoga or bhakti yoga or ashtanga yoga? Vipata yoga, karma yoga. And it's like, that's all just knowing, knowing, knowledge. Do you hear the sound? Enter there. We're practicing trikonasana. And you really enter deeply into the pose. And you start feeling these new patterns of sensation. What were you saying at the break, Angie? You're holding poses longer and the, the muscle memory. The muscle memory goes, that's more than five. <laughs> and then the, the response is an association in the mind. And woven through all that are old emotions. Enter there. That's where you enter. Maybe you have some difficulty with your lover and you're caught up in a psychophysical knot. And that's where you enter. That's where you enter. That is the spirit of the practice. All the, everything else is just talking. Remember yesterday, we talked about who you are? And like really, when you're faced with that question, you want to answer with all your knowing. You see this in the asana community so much, you know, that it's like in this particular pose, there's always an outward rotation of the upper arm bone. And then we call it like a universal principle of alignment. (coughs) But the body does not work like that because it has the quality of flowing. And so sometimes there's an outward spiral and then two years down the road, 
actually, now you have to start countering that even in the same bone with inward spirals. And you start to see currents and subcurrents. So this morning, the beaver was swimming upstream and moving its body, swimming upstream. And then suddenly, it stopped moving its body and it went deeper under the water. But because I was on the bridge, I could see it still. And then it just floated in the opposite direction of the current. But that's just the current on the surface. The beaver can drop into other currents. You know this in the ocean, right? You go in the ocean and you're swimming out with a wave and suddenly the current takes you in a completely different direction. And the body is like this, currents and subcurrents and sub-subcurrents. And that's what we're paying attention to. But then the mind thinks, oh, but what does the system say? And it takes so many years to enter here. But why should it take so many years? You can do this now. Get to know the currents and the subcurrents. Jennifer, you asked yesterday about the values. Even even the, the breath in traditional yoga is called a wind. Isn't that so beautiful? It's just the inhale and exhale. Today when we were sitting, even just for five minutes, do you notice how when you really let go of manipulating the breath, which especially for people who have a pranayama practice, this is really hard to do. Like to move from manipulating the breath to actually just letting, just letting the breath be. Letting the body be. Especially if you read the yoga journal a lot and you have one of those um, teenage bellies, like when you're 11 years old. And you're mm-hmm. You try and keep your belly like this. I'm sure nobody does that. <laughs> and you, you can't breathe. Because it's like you're trying to maintain some kind of self-image. It's not even a self-image, it's a cultural belief system. But just to let the breath flow freely. The diaphragm moves. And then the yogis call this a wind. Because it feels like, it just feels like, who's breathing? Who's breathing? It's just the natural world. And um, so they, they, there really are two m- most important values. The first one is called prana value. And um, in traditional texts like the Hatha Yoga Pratipika, they do this all the time, where they take a word and they give it a few meanings, so that when you read a sentence, it doesn't make any sense. And they do this to um, so that you can't study from books. So prana is a good example, right? So they use prana to talk about life energy, but the word prana also means inhaling, (laughs) inhaling pattern. So when you inhale, literally, the, the breath goes in the nostrils, up, it turns and goes down, and then because of the vacuum in the lungs, 
the, the respiratory diaphragm drops and the lungs fill up. So the breath is going down, right? But if you pay attention to the energetic quality of inhaling, the energetic pattern in the body and in the mind is going like this. And that's why sometimes prana is called spring. (laughs) And so when you look at vinyasa sequencing, all upward and outward actions always happen on an inhale. Because the body wants to go when you inhale. And this is (coughs) called prana. And the home of prana is the heart. Because when you have a deep inhale, the heart fills up. So this is called pranavayu, the wind of prana, which, which describes, articulates the energetic pattern of inhaling. And some people are very pranic. Usually people who are not so grounded are a little bit more pranic there. They like backbending. They don't like forward bends, and they live on Salt Spring Island. (laughs) (laughs) And they hang out in New Age bookstores, always looking at the top shelf. (laughs) And the opposite of pranavayu is true. Actually, it's said that if you took Canada and you tipped it on its side, all the pranic people would fall into Salt Spring Island. We'll try that. Um, and then the opposite action is called apanavayu. So this is the complementary <coughs> action to pranavayu. So when you're born, you're born with pranavayu. When you come out of your mother, you come out on an inhale. And when you die, you die on an exhale. And um, apanavayu is the, so again, just to again see the difference between the breath and prana, or apana, is when you exhale, the breath is literally going out. But the energetic pattern is like the fall. The leaves dry up, and the energy goes back into the stem of the tree, back into the heart. And the home of Apanavayu is Mulabandha. So when you exhale all the way ver- down to the end of your exhale, something in the center of the pelvic floor tones. And this is called Mulabandha. Mula means root, and Bandha comes over into English as the word bond. And it's the root bond which describes the way that the mind, the pelvic diaphragm, and the breath all bond together in the core of the human body. And so, in vinyasa practice, all backward and downward movements happen on an exhale. Because this is the body's natural movement in an exhale. And so some postures are pranic and some are aponic. Aponic postures are very grounding. So the primary series is very, very aponic, right? Forward bend, forward bend, forward bend, forward. Very, very grounding. Yeah. And 
Aponic people tend to have this kind of alignment. Maybe even a little bit depressed. And aponic people hate practicing backbending. So therapeutically, like, an aponic person would do wonderfully with, like, supported backbending. Strap them to some blocks, put them in a backbend for, like, 30 minutes. And then <laughs> So these, these winds come through us and the work is to balance the pranic and aponic action. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says to Arjuna, um, pour the pranic pattern into the aponic pattern and then pour the aponic pattern into the pranic pattern. Which is actually a really interesting pranayama technique. Have we ever done that before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah. So this is kind of how the values work and... Um, the, uh, the point is to pay attention, to pay attention to these patterns and to have them balanced out. So, for example, in a backbend, you actually want to cultivate a ponic alignment. So, in a really good backbend, you're actually thinking aponically. So, we're drawing the tailbone down in between the feet. We're really grounding the hands we're trying to create a lift of the chest that's countered by a containment of the ribs. So really, really aponic inside the back bend. And likewise, when you're in a deep forward bend, you're trying to cultivate pranic alignment. Right? So when you're in a forward bend, we're trying to find ways of opening the heart and dropping the pubic bone. So your, back, so your forward bends look like this. but universally it seems that the human mind likes the pranic pattern more than the aponic pattern so that's one of the reasons why it's much easier to be present at the top of your inhale than at the bottom of your exhale. So like when you exhale down into the pelvic floor, most people can't even feel that because they're like cut off here. There's a great James Joyce character, God his name. James Joyce describes him as living as two feet above his shoulders. (laughs) His head was two feet above his shoulders. (laughs) He's completely cut off. Maybe you were like this a couple of years ago, before you started waking up the body in this practice. And um, so in, in uh, pranayama techniques, as every single pranayama technique matures, it matures by focusing more and more on the bottom of the exhale. Sometimes longer exhales, like we just did an hour ago. Did you notice that? Mm -hmm. And sometimes um, long pauses at the bottom of your out-breath. Because when the exhale goes down into the pelvic floor, it creates contact with 
deep sensation and feeling inside the pelvic floor and it's hard for the mind to stay present when you start to feel those core feelings in the center of the pelvic floor in the first chakra. And the first chakra, if you ever look at how it's symbolized in Indian art, it's symbolized by an elephant with seven tusks, which represents the seven minerals of the earth. So it's earthy, it's grounding. But the mind wants to be in the flowers and not down in the center of the pelvic floor. And so that's why in the yoga poses, the foundation of the pose is um, this action that we're trying to locate where the sitting bones and the pubic bone and the coccyx can start to all come together simultaneously. And then you exhale down into the pelvic floor and it creates tone. And then something happens when you inhale where the center of the pelvic floor begins to lift a little bit. And this creates suction or updraft. And then <coughs> Uddhyana Bandha seems to happen naturally where the spine sucks into the central axis and up. Sometimes we think the central axis is actually the spine, but it's in front of the spine. You can feel the spine suck in. And so that's what all these spirals are in service of. They're in service of the central axis of the body, which is the guru, the teacher. So you, you've, you, guru in English is, comes into English as the word gravity. And so everything we do is in service of gravity. But gravity is a metaphor. It's like the law of gravity is a metaphor for the laws of reality. And so this is this practice that we're involved in. And we focus on internal alignment, internal form. That's Krishna's term. Internal form in the Bhagavad Gita. And, uh, you know, unfortunately what happens, though, in the community, because it's the nature of the mind, is that we get stuck on the outer form of the poses. And so much focus on the external geometry of the poses that we don't get the internal geometry of the pose. And then the mind is on the outside of the asana. And then you can actually go through a whole asana practice and not even be there. Have you ever done this? I did this for a few years. It's great, right? Like, Yeah, you just practice and you don't have to show up. Woody Allen says, half of practice is just showing up. No, he says half of life is just showing up. All of life, actually, is just showing up. Don't squander your life. You don't drift. That particular that chant? Yeah. The first part of the chant is a is a traditional chant that I learned in the Soto Zen tradition. And the way it's usually chanted is really lovely. It's so the whole room will chant. Um, life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken, awaken. And then the timekeeper in the side of the room who's timing the meditation sessions whispers to the whole room do not squander your life mm -hmm. and when that happens it's heavy mm -hmm. it's like this little reminder 
don't waste your time. And usually it is chanted after sitting practice, where you realize that you're just spinning out of time. Mind out of time. Time out of mind. So, that's where that first part of the chant comes from. And I chant this at the end because there's a closing chant usually in tradition that I learned, in the Ashtanga tradition. Mm-hmm. Which you find it in a lot of the traditions of Krishna Macharya. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't really like it so much. Mm-hmm. If you chant something, you really have to believe in the meaning or you shouldn't be chanting it. And um, I don't know that chant. Uh, <coughs> Do you think we in the West mostly lose it because of sheer effort? Like we're so driven in the West, for instance, like you're saying this outward. Because as a teacher, mm-hmm. you want so badly to tell everyone to, in a way, physically practice at about 60% uh-huh. and come back, but then they can't help but be gravitate into how deep the person next to them is. Or yeah. Just like a yeah. I guess what I'm asking is given ideas of how to back that off yeah. that would work with the average Western person. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good question. Um, but before I respond to it, just to be careful about idealizing ancient India. <laughs> like, you read the Yoga Sutra and it's like, you know, we've been struggling with some of these things as humanity for a long time, right? It's not just... But definitely, we, we're in a fast-paced attention deficit culture. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think part of it is um, to really practice, 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 and to teach in the way that you practice, and to make sure that your practice when you're as a teacher is... Um, true to the practice that is helping you wake up. And hopefully over time, whatever you're practicing will move into a kind of crisis mode, or maybe not a crisis, but you'll have doubts about your practice. And that's the time to really listen to what your practice might need, and then to teach from that. So you're not teaching what someone else told you is practice. You see? And that's why I always encourage people to do home practice. (laughs) Like, it's good to practice with other people, and you should do that. But you should also do some home practice. So that when you're not with other people, you can tune into how you really practice. To see maybe if your social practice is influenced by your self-image. Or the, you know, the vibe. And I mean, you know this in Calgary. This is a new studio, and a lot of you have practiced at other studios. And every studio you go to, there's a kind of value system built into how we share and how we practice. And so I think, um, you know, in, 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 in traditional language, like, there are instructors and teachers. <laughs> and... Uh, I think what happens is the maturity of the instructor, over time, the instructor begins to find his or her um, path within the system and then can begin to share that with wisdom. And some 
I don't want to use the word authority, but some sense that they're less moved by their circumstances than they were years ago. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. And um, doubt is very, 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 very important. I don't mean doubt in the sense of like self-doubt, mm-hmm. but I mean like the, the kind of doubt that comes with faith. You should not have blind faith in anything. So some doubt is important. There's a wonderful poem that I always like to, a little homily that I always like to recite. Some of you have heard of it a million times if you studied with me before, but um, which is goes like this: Great doubt, great awakening. <laughs> little doubt, little awakening. Mm-hmm. No doubt, no awakening. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, no awakening. I think about this a lot in terms of young people you know, especially young teenagers enter into a time in their life where um, they start to have great doubt, you know. And then they turn to uh, music and drugs to give them valid spiritual experiences. Like, okay, it's easy to say those are elite, you know, drugs are illegal in a... But, you know, a lot of people actually have their first spiritual experiences, you know, eating mushrooms or listening to a, a concert. I mean, how many of you have listened to a piece of music? And that's a valid practice, you know. Um, but then what happens is those experiences are not supported in any way. And then so they, they, they just start to numb out on those experiences. And on the computer, we talked about yesterday. And that we don't support those deep questions they start to bring. Maybe we're impatient a little bit with the questions that young people have. Those great existential questions like, this is impermanent. (laughs) You're going to die. Everyone you know is going to die. You really see this with young people who who have death around them. A parent dies, or a sibling dies, or a friend dies. And uh, so, like, how can we support young people so that we can live these questions? Because you can't answer them. You go down to New Orleans after the flood and you look people in the eye who've lost their kids and everything they've lost their home they've lost their work and what kind of answer do you give them and if you say you know god is looking after you it's totally useless it doesn't help it doesn't help they need a blanket they need you to look them in the eye and to just be yourself, be real. 
and spontaneously you'll know how to help them. Oh, this person really needs shoes. That's not aid. It's self-expression. That's not being compassionate. It's actually being compassion. Being peace. Mm-hmm. And so, like with the young people around you, you have a responsibility to really support their questions. And don't give them answers. They don't want your answers. They don't need your answers. They need your support so they can have questions. So in supporting them with that, just listening to them, like just sort of holding space so that they can ask the questions and mm-hmm. not give them a response back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And listen, what are what are your questions? What are your questions? Can you all do this? Like, can you quiet down all your knowing and like try to stay close to what your questions are? There's nothing worse than being around someone who has answers for everything. Question, question. I find this in asana practice too, like somebody is having a bit of trouble in a headstand, you know, and like I know the theory, but I'll spend time watching their headstand and ask them questions about their headstand so that they can start to feel what might need to happen or where it's falling apart. And then you see people learn really quickly because they are asking questions. When I first started work as a therapist, um, I was really interested in dreams. And my first supervisor said, when someone brings you a dream in the first three or four sessions, never interpret their dream. Because if you interpret their dream, you'll set up a kind of pattern or then they'll start bringing you their dreams for an interpretation. Mm-hmm. And how to keep handing the dream back to them for their interpretation, for their, not interpretation, but association, how they can feel their dream without interpreting it. Who wants to be interpreted? Mm-hmm. It's a kind of violence in a way, you mm-hmm. know? Back to that sort of music and drugs and that kind of spiritual experience. There's been a fair amount of research of late about left brain and right brain. Mm-hmm. Um, the left brain sort of governs this uh, me and that mm-hmm. sort of there, and that when, mm-hmm. the right, or when the left brain gets shut down, yeah. the right brain will drop that mm-hmm. falls away. Yeah. And there is this spaciousness. Is there, I'm not sure what I'm asking, I just, um, mm-hmm. You know, through a, an extended meditation or a, a consistent meditation practice, mm-hmm. or, or ways to support. Yeah. We're so we're such a left brain society. Mm-hmm. To support expression of the right brain. Yeah. Well, I think For sure. The computer. That's all right yeah. brain. Yeah. Or I'm sure that's all left brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just a different vocabulary, right, to, to describe this. I, 
You know, I also think sometimes, like, you always can't know what's good for someone else. So I think sometimes what's important to listen for is, like, I mean, I feel this often doing the work that I do is people come and, like, want advice. <laughs> like, I can uh, give them some advice. I have a younger brother who's a Zen student, and he, he met a teacher he really wanted to study with. And after he knew the teacher for a couple of years, he went to him and said, um, the teacher's name's Ed Brown, went to him and said, uh, I'd, I'd really like to be your student. Will you be my teacher? This is what you're supposed to do. Formalize the relationship a little bit. Will you be my teacher? And Ed Brown said, I can't teach you how to be yourself. How can I teach you how to be yourself? Ed Brown has a story of meeting his teacher, Shinru Suzuki, and saying to him after a while of practice, Suzuki Roshi, what's the point? (laughs) <laughs> what's the point of this practice <laughs> and Suzuki Roshi said the point is to find out the point in other words take the question and work with the question a silent question mm-hmm. Michael I think I told you at the other workshop um, last year my three-year-old daughter, uh-huh. Emma, came mm-hmm. to me and said, she had this thing about dying, and she said, mm-hmm. I don't get it. You live, you grow up, you live, you die. What's the point? Yeah. She was three. Yeah. That's when I was in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, like, before the age of five, this is a pretty common theme, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, that there is death, that your parents will die and mm-hmm. your pets will die. Yeah. And oh, I'm going to die too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a way that if your family is grounded and there's love and support there, then it's best to let that question just hang around. What are you going to say? I said it's a journey. But she had it down to a fine art, you know. You yeah. just put her into bed for like three hours and your yeah. hands on the doorknob ready to walk out the door yeah. and she nails you with something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, she yeah. had it down. In, uh, in psychotherapy, they call this the doorknob syndrome. <laughs> Does anybody know about this? Do you know about this? Yeah. It's basically like you go through the session and like you don't talk about anything. People just talk about everything they know already. And then, like, when they're leaving, they put their hand on the doorknob, and just as they're leaving, then they, like, drop it, (laughs) and then leave. (laughs) And then there's some people who can't leave. They've got their hand on the doorknob, and they're just talking and talking and talking.
all of these identifications. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a nice story about this. Is uh, yeah. gods and the goddesses and the demons in the world all wanted to find uh, some kind of nectar that was the immortal nectar called Amrita Murt Murt means to uh, uh, actually it's a really interesting word actually normally it means like death to, to die Murt but it's actually where we get the word mortal um, but it also means to ground down, to grind down. Mm-hmm. And it's where we get the word meal, right? Because a meal is just like a death, right? It's like you grind something down and it dies. Its form is dead. But then that form dies as one thing and is born again as something. Else. So if you put a in front of a word, right, so amrit means not death. It's also synonymous with the word karuna, which means compassion. Isn't that interesting? Amrita and karuna mean the same thing. So it means no death, and it also means compassion. So they wanted to find this nectar of compassion of no death. You can just sleep if you want. Um, And uh, so... They decide that the only way that they can get this nectar is if they go to the ocean and they churn the ocean to distill the nectar. Have you ever tried to churn something? Has anybody here ever made butter? <laughs> yeah, Angie? Did you guys make butter up there? <laughs> yeah? Do you remember how? I remember it was like your arms going to fall off. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they do it this way. They you wrap something around a barrel and you spin it like this. Has anybody ever seen this before? Mm-hmm. So cool. So um, they want to churn the ocean. So what they do is they find a tortoise and they take the tortoise and they flip it on its back and they float it in the center of the ocean. And then they take Mount Meru. So Mount Meru is the holiest mountain in India. And Mount Meru is an upside-down mountain. So you see this in Tantra Yoga, too. The mountain is an inverted triangle, which actually represents Mulabandha. Mm-hmm. And whenever you read about Mount Meru in Indian mythology, it's always a, s- a symbol of the body. So they take Mount Meru, which is this huge mountain, but it's upside-down, and they balance the mountain on the navel of the tortoise, <laughs> which is on its back in the ocean, it's a true story. <laughs> and then the gods and goddesses take a serpent and they wrap it around the mountain. And then they have a big fight. That's another story. So there's this big fight. Who should get the fire-breathing head? Who should get the tail? Obviously, the demons get the fire-breathing head. Gods and goddesses get the tail of the serpent. And they start churning the ocean by spinning the tortoise back and forth via Mount Meru. Can you picture this? So they're churning. And of course, between the lines, you know about this, right? This is your experience in asana, right? 
you come to asana because you want the nectar. You want the sweetness, the sukha. And so you come and you start practicing and everything is so great. You love the practice. You go buy a mat. You go to that store and get all the right clothing. And then you start telling all your friends, like, oh, I've got to come to Yoga Mandala. It's like the best studio. Because other studios, they kind of, they're okay. They're some good teachers, but mostly they don't know what they're doing. Come to this studio. This is like the best studio. And you go to dinner parties and you show them like Nadara Jasana. <laughs> and then at the studio, you kind of like fall in love with one teacher. It's like, yeah, he's an okay teacher, but actually she's got, a good, she's got the good secret class. Um, and um, anyways, you go through this honeymoon, right, with your practice. Because you want the sweet, and you get a little bit of sweetness at the beginning, but then as you start to churn the body, and that's basically my job, right? It's like I'm trying to like churn you in these poses, right? Although most of you can just do it yourself. And then um, what starts coming out? They, they start churning, and then out of the central axis of the mountain, which is called the Sashumna, Suddenly, this horrible stench fills the universe, and it smells. Ants are going like, (laughs) (laughs) and like snakes are wrapping their tails around their heads, and like little kids are like, and it's like the worst smell you ever smelled in your life. (laughs) Has anyone here ever smelled a dead body? You can smell it in your teeth. It's a smell that it can't ever go away. You can't ever lose that smell. So they, they smell the smell. And this is what happens to you in asana practice, right? You want the sweet juice, and then you start practicing, and what comes out? Toxins. Like the worst, sometimes literally it's like the worst smell comes out of your pores. But also just all the habit energies show up, right? And you think, oh, okay, maybe I should go back to that other studio. Because when I was at the Shala, none of this ever happened. It's like, I don't know, it must be Yoga Mandala. So I'll go back to the Shala because like, none of these toxins ever came out. It was a better practice over there. Or it's like, that, it's like, oh, this happened at the Shala too. Maybe Pilates. <laughs> Maybe I should get into the Pilates. And, uh, and actually, that's why Pilates is so popular now in yoga studios, is because you start churning the body, and it's like you can't handle it, so you have to try another name for something. And then you go deep into Pilates, and you find the same things there. And then you go deep into the heart of your relationship with your closest friends, and you find the same things there, too. <coughs> and so they're churning and churning. And then they don't know what to do because the toxins don't stop. They keep coming and coming and coming. And so they call on Shiva, and Shiva is like a metaphor for pure awareness. Just awareness that's not colored or shaped by what it's perceiving. And Shiva has this amazing tongue. Have you ever seen Shiva's tongue? Well, usually it's blue from this story, actually. Or his throat's blue. He has this really long tongue, and he takes his tongue, and he inserts it into the central axis of the body, and he 
slides his tongue down the central axis of the body right to the core of the mountain body. And then he sucks all of the toxins up out of the mountain and into the root of his palate. That's why Shiva has a blue tongue and a blue throat. And then, oh, apparently he leaves just a tiny little bit in the mountain, and that's where all the serpents get their poison. And he, he takes it into the root of the palate, and then he goes, hmm, hmm, and doesn't swallow it or spit it out. Doesn't swallow it, which is attachment, because then you become the poison. And doesn't spit it out, aversion. Just like, I don't want this. There's nobody there. He just puts it in the back of the throat, and there's a mischievous smile. Mm. That's how the story ends. And this is actually your practice, is that as you're churning the mind and body, when these different patterns arise, you release the tongue and... Mm. As opposed to like (laughs) 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 posturing. (laughs) Release the palate, which is like saying. Isn't it interesting what the universe has just brought together? Isn't it interesting what's just materialized in awareness? And you don't swallow it, you don't spit it out. So like you finish your backbend, it's finished. Wow, such a good backbend, and now I'm going to start a backbend practice. My backbend. I've got to go visit Danielle and start doing my backbending practices. <laughs> hear the birds? Don't spit them out. Don't swallow them. The birds are just water. They have the quality of flowing. Sometimes we do these five, every season we do a, a intensives in Toronto where we, uh, it's limited to 15 people. And um, some of you have been there. And we just practice together all day. We do sitting meditation practice, pranayama, chanting, textual study, asana. It's designed to churn you in the context of community. And um, we do this for five days every season to deepen our practice. And um, the last intensive or was it the second last intensive? One of the homework assignments that I asked everyone to do is every day at the end of the day, you would write a self-portrait. So every day at the end of the day, I just wanted you to pen a quick poem, four or five lines, self-portrait. And like the first day, it's like, me, 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 I'm this, I'm not that. But it's so nice, like by the end of the week, like 
someone writes a self-portrait, one person wrote all about the tree outside. Someone else wrote about the sounds. That's your self-portrait. Where do you end? Where do you begin? So much memory. So much memory is always like haunting us from behind. Always at our back. And uh, this serves to inform us, to ground us. But you can also let go of some of that memory. Can you? Can you let go of the? Can you let go of some of your memory so that you can um, arrive here? You know, like I can really use my identity as an art form for political purposes, maybe. I'm a young gay man, and so I'm in a culture with little tolerance, and so I want my sexual orientation to be obvious to wake you up so that it can be accepted or integrated into the culture. But at the same time, I have to find the place where I'm not that. I'm not that. So that I can also just be free to be who I am. So like, where do you hold on, squeeze certain parts of your identity? to show your family or your your workplace or, your, or just like this idealized culture out there you know like like a car you know like you buy a car you buy a mercedes and like you're going to be aware when you're driving around that you're in a mercedes it's just a car Maybe it's got some real wood in the interior. (laughs) But like, there's a way where there's like some identification. Like, oh, they're seeing me in the Mercedes. (laughs) Yeah? I wouldn't want to pull up to the party in a Hyundai. And then Hyundai's like, we have to make a Hyundai that's like a little bit fancy for the people in the Mercedes category. So they can feel that their Hyundai is like a bit prestigious. <laughs> and you go some places in the world and everybody just wants a Mercedes. You know, that's like the... Come on. What's important? Any other questions or comments? I wanted to cover, I wanted to go back through the Yoga Sutra today, but I 
gone on a tangent somehow <laughs> because of the those beavers <laughs> damming up everything. We have just a little bit of time left, is there? Mm-hmm. I have a question. I don't know if you did this yesterday, but I'm curious about a, a preferential sort of um, form of the yoga sutras that you have found valuable for the lay person. Yeah, well, what I've handed out to you is just one page of the. Um, did I hand out both pages? I think I've handed out two now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of a translation that was done by someone named Chip Hartranft. H-A-R-T-R-A-N-F-T. When I first met Chip, he said, oh, I'm Chip, just like Potato Chip. (laughs) Who's a friend and just a wonderful person. And what's interesting about Chip is that he is is a yoga practitioner and he's a long-time meditator. He's a student of... uh, Joseph Goldstein and Larry Rosenberg and um, and Chip wanted to translate the Yoga Sutra for his practice so he could figure out how it relates to his practice. So he didn't have like any kind of investment in it. It was just what does this say about practice? And what's interesting about his translations is that a lot of scholars have translated the Yoga Sutra and so you start getting into the third chapter and you, they're kind of fudging it a bit because a lot of people just haven't actually had the experience. So they're just translating words. You know? And I think Chip really describes um, what it's like for the practitioner uh, who's practicing. And so his book was published by Shambhala Publications in 2003 and is excellent, has a wonderful commentary. And if you want to see the Sanskrit English, which is what I gave you, you can download it for free off the internet uh, from arlingtoncenter.org. But I also encourage you to buy the book because to read the commentary. His commentary is really, really good. H-A-R-T-R-A-N-F-T. Chip Hartranft. And what's the name of the uh, the Yoga Sutra attributed to Patanjali. Kind of original. Uh-huh. Can you go over the five kleshas again? The five kleshas? Yeah. You have to buy my new book. <laughs> my new book is all of it. The whole book is the five kleshas. Um the, the first klesha is avidya, which is uh, not seeing or being with things as they are. Not being with things as they are. You can't be with things as they are because of these two patterns in the mind and body of raga and dvesha, attachment and aversion. Attachment and aversion. Attachment and aversion. Attachment is wanting to repeat pleasurable experience. Aversion is trying to lean out of what's not pleasurable, lean away from what's not pleasurable. And so, for example, for most people who sit 
uh, do sitting practice, one of the first things that happens is the knees become uncomfortable. Who has a sitting practice? Put up, keep your hand up. Okay. So you know that the knee sometimes starts to go. And um, so we can't vidya, be present with the knee, because when negative feelings arise, like pain in the knee, um, we want to get away from it. This is called dvesha. Okay. But this really interesting thing happens is that in wanting to get away, we objectify it. And we say, now it's my knee. And I want to get away from it. But actually, before that, there's pain in the knee. Right? And then with aversion, it's suddenly pain in my knee, and I don't like it. It's really interesting to watch. So whenever there is aversion, there is the birth of asmita, the fourth klesha, which is the story of I, me, and mine. The story of I, me, and mine. This is very similar to Jung's idea of the ego. For Carl Jung, the ego was a defense mechanism, and that the first function of the ego is to like or dislike. And as soon as you like or dislike something, the creation of the something you like or dislike gives rise to a feeling of a me. It's really interesting, right? But before that, there's no me. There's just pain, sensation that's changing. And then suddenly it's my me. I don't like it. My leg is going to go numb. Then it's going to fall off. Then I won't be able to practice anymore. And um, maybe this is practice is not for me. And dog. Do you hear the dog outside? Maybe that's our dog. Is our dog? That could be our dog. Oh, I wonder. We used to have a dog that was like that dog. And but that was actually in the last relationship. And I should have kept the dog and not given it back to her. Why did she have to keep the dog? Maybe if she kept the dog, maybe if I kept the dog. Why did we break up? I'm not quite sure what happened there. And I wonder if I'll ever be able to have a dog again. It will always remind me of walking in Elbow Park and times with the dog. I should get a house, like, right on the park. If I got a house right on the park, then I'd be able to, like, have a dog. <laughs> and then maybe if I had a dog, then I might meet someone in the park who also has a dog. <laughs> Or maybe I don't have to get a dog. I'll just hang out in the park and I'll meet a single person mm-hmm. with the dog. <coughs> and then I can move into her house. <laughs> and then I'll have a house on <laughs> And um, it's not far from the studio. Some of those houses are old and... We are living in one of those old houses beside one of those new houses with like all those w- the rock stuck on the other side of it. Porch. And then meanwhile, it's like the suddenly the bell rings. <laughs> it's like just like no practice. No practice. And the source of all that distraction is wanting. 
or in this case, not wanting to feel the feeling in the knee. And a good teacher will be able to distinguish whether you should move the posture or not. And the teacher says, just sit with it for 20 minutes. Just sit with it. And then the mind goes, oh, this is not a good teacher. It's <laughs> like... You know, like, where's his training? I, know, I looked on his bio. Didn't really say exactly what his training is. So Does he even practice? And to discern the difference in the pain? Well, I don't need a teacher. I'll just forget it. <laughs> I'll just go skiing. Like, why would I want to sit here on such a nice day? Like, go smoking in front of Bino. <laughs> Seeing people. Maybe I might meet somebody there. <laughs> but actually, the kind of people who go there probably don't have a Mercedes. Well, maybe they might have a Mercedes. They may be smoking. Maybe I just don't smoke because people in the yoga studio don't smoke. Maybe, maybe I'd feel much free if I was smoking. <laughs> and it's like it just doesn't let up. And so the next klesha is abhinivesha. Let's say it together. Abhinivesha. Abhinivesha means the fear of letting go of asmita. The fear of really letting go of all those stories. Like, think about this with people you're not getting along with so well. Maybe like a parent, an old story you have about like your father or something. And, uh, how you carry that around. Like. Or maybe he's dead and you're still carrying it around. And like, you can't have any kind of forgiveness because you can't accept your father. And that doesn't mean accepting like condone some, something that maybe you should not be condoning. But it really means like accepting somebody. Sometimes we really accept people and realize we don't want to actually ever see them again. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had this like with a lover or something? And it's like trying to change them, trying to change them. And then one day you realize this is their character. Mm-hmm. And I've got the problem mm-hmm. for them. It's fine. (laughs) I'm the one who's suffering. Like, they don't see the problem. But I'm trying, like, it's like eight years now. I've been trying to make them see the problem. But they don't have a problem. And they keep telling you, I haven't got a problem with that. It's like, then one day you realize, if I really accept who this person is, I can't live with them. And in a codependent relationship, that is so threatening. Because you need to keep trying to change them like you were trying to change your father. (laughs) And if you actually (coughs) accept them, it means you actually have to face giving up that pattern, which is letting go of the story. It's an addiction to a story. It's not how things actually are. It's your story about it. And there's so much fear there. 
And the paradox is that when you can, then suddenly avidya becomes vidya. Suddenly you actually see how things are. That's why therapists who do couples therapy burn out so quickly. Because most of the theory is like trying to keep the couple together. Not really like seeing how things are. Come on, let's go to couples therapy so we can stay together and work this out. What about going to couples therapy to actually see how things are? And then maybe when you really see how things are, some love shows up. (laughs) You wake up in the morning and you look over at your partner and you go, whoa, what have I done? Who are you? And then love bursts forth because you have no idea who they are. And then you can actually learn something. (laughs) It's like a whole new kind of relationship because you've let go of everything you know. A little death, a little bit dying. Um, I'm just wondering how um, my husband and I are just really struggling with his family right now mm-hmm. and how to deal with them. So we were having a long conversation last night about it, like how do you accept them and not judge, whatever that means, yeah. even if you don't really agree with their values or what they're doing. And yeah. with family, it's not like you can just remove yourself mm-hmm. or not see them again uh-huh. because there's so many connections. Is there yeah. So we're, we're <laughs> I don't know if there's any answer to that. Yeah. If you find an answer to that, let me know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I would be very interested. Um, acceptance doesn't mean condoning something. But if you can't accept something, then you can't ever find freedom. And so, to accept someone in your heart um, means that you might be able to deepen your relationship with them. Because you can accept who they are and you're not trying to make them so different or because you're letting go, Abhinivesha, right? It's like you're letting go of your expectation. Mm-hmm. And the opposite is also true, like we were talking about earlier, that sometimes when you really see how someone is, you realize that you don't want to be anywhere near them and you will do whatever you can um, um, to not have to engage. Yeah, I I grew up that way, you know. I I uh, I grew up in a neighborhood, and and um, you know, for many years, I was so angry at you know the kind of culture I grew up in, doing everything I can to get away from it. And um, and then one day I realized that. I'm walking around angry. How is that beneficial for the culture that I want to live? 
What kind of culture am I creating if I'm walking around pissed off? How is that helpful? And then I realized that there was a way that I can devote the rest of my life to fighting against the values of that culture with kindness in my heart. In other words, I don't have the intention to cause harm to anybody in that culture, but that I'll do everything I can to promote a different set of values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess that can be clear. We're just discussing about social responsibility and if you're just always withdrawing away from things that you don't yeah. condone, then, yeah. then how do you get changed? To yeah, yeah. Yeah, like in Paris right now, you know. Paris is like the strangest place right now, you know, that the government does not actually acknowledge a whole segment of the population. It's like they don't even exist. And in the suburbs of Paris, there's like these profound riots that are starting. We hear them on the news a little bit here and there when there's a big fire or something, but there's a lot of tension, right? And um, so the, the community that's being oppressed is so angry, you know, And this anger is so good. This is yoga, you know, because this anger arises out of an imbalance. Okay? But the first yama is ahimsa, not having the intention to cause harm in body, speech, and mind, regardless of time, place, or circumstance. And so... When your anger at the government motivates you to take action, this is yoga. But when in the action you take, you have the intention to cause harm, that's not yoga. Right? This is what Gandhi says, right? Gandhi says that, that the anger, if you, if you have the intention to cause harm then when you overthrow the government, your government will then operate with exactly the same culture. Mm -hmm. And you see this in Cuba, you see this all over South America, there's so many examples of it right now. Great, you know, it was so wonderful to see this amazing revolution with Fidel Castro, you know. And then the violence that started to erupt in that revolution was despicable. And then a government is created and the first thing they do is put all the homosexuals in prison. Mm-hmm. So, so to watch where the move in our social action has anger and the intention to cause harm. And any of you who do social action, you see this, right? And it's, it's interesting because the people who get things done can listen. They can listen. It's like the Dalai Lama, right? The Dalai Lama right now says things like, my friends, the Chinese. My friends, the enemies. So he says, my friends, the enemy. <laughs> and he listens. It's amazing. Really, really interesting. 
And it's like the news media don't really know how to report about it. <laughs> it's like because you. So what happens is like the focus on the Dalai Lama now becomes like the Pope of Buddhism, but you don't. You, we never like hear how he talks about an issue, which is so interesting, because he doesn't want to cause harm, but he's promoting unrest. Or as Paul Hawkins says, blessed unrest. It's actually a term from Martha Graham. Blessed unrest. This is your practice. Action. Taking action. You, you, if, someone is, if someone thinks that this practice is about passivity, then they have not touched samadhi yet. Because when you feel interconnection, you, you, you have to take action. You, you, can't, you can't let the river be turned into a dump. Because mm-hmm. the river is your body. Mm-hmm. I still have a question. Mm-hmm. Sort of Maybe this will be the last one. And then we'll I know I had to ask it because my hands are so sweaty. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, if, what if you know that you have the ability to be open-hearted and accepting mm-hmm. and kind towards somebody? Mm-hmm but they don't seem to have that same ability to do that towards you. If you mm-hmm. have the ability to to let things go mm-hmm. and to accept things as right. they are, but there's that resistance from one side. Yeah. And you, you, you know, if there's real kindness there in your heart, as you're describing, then you can accept them, even though it's hard to see. Mm-hmm. Like, for example... Someone, if you're friends with someone like who has a, a really difficult addiction they're struggling with, like does anybody know people who, like they just they try and kick the habit and like they just can't, they can't. They've tried like to the best of their ability, and you go, well, they're not trying hard enough. But really, you can see that that they're doing the best that they can actually. Who are you? To who are you like, to judge that? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so this is kind of where karma comes in because sometimes your kindness is wisdom where you, you have to watch their karma just burn itself out. And maybe it might ha- not happen in the lifetime that you get to witness. Maybe some of the factors they've inherited who knows what happened to them or what happened to their parents. Or they inherited something you, you can't understand, maybe, and they're trying to deal the best that they can. And um, you just have to watch them. And sometimes watching them means you can be friends, and sometimes it means like you shouldn't be too close to that because maybe you have a predilection for the same for heroin. I shouldn't be around them because I know that pain and if I hang around them, I'll be shooting up as much as I can. And what if it's, if it's a story? What they're hanging on to is a story? It's always a story. It's in, always, always, always a story. Yeah. All of your addictions at bottom are stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <coughs> and also sometimes we come out of our addictions and realize I need something else. I can't keep being this person's caregiver (laughs) you know like I need something else 
Okay, so we've solved all of our <laughs> problems. <laughs> Let's finish by chanting.